This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. I'm just standing looking up towards an incredibly quaint thatched cottage. To the front of it you've got this very traditional uh, cottage garden, two-storey with the thatch creating wonderful shelves over the tops of the windows to create a bit of shade and then round the front porch yes you do have this great mass of roses growing and this is a very special place not just because of its beauty when you look at it but because it was the birthplace 175 years ago of one of our best-known and well-loved English authors. And as I look now, first of all, I've got this wonderful woodland and I know what lies beyond that are the open fields of Dorset and we're not too far, two, three miles away from Dorchester itself. And when he was writing, the landscape was almost a character within his novels. It was so important to him. I'm talking about Thomas Hardy. And it was here that he wrote one of the novels he's so well known for, Far From the Madding Crowd. And it's interesting that, you know, it's been recently released as a new film. It has brought more people to Hardy. More people are seeing the Dorset landscape on film. But I've come to experience the life of Hardy in this landscape for this week's open country. So we have to start at his cottage. And I'm with Harriet Still. This is owned by the National Trust and you're managing it, Harriet. So hire Bockhampton. Yes, he was born here, as you say, 175 years ago. And it really did feel in the middle of nowhere and the heath stretches out behind it. So he always said he was on the cusp between civilization in Dorchester and this wilderness that stretched out for miles and miles beyond. And the woodland that I'm looking at now, which, which separates us from that open heath, it would have been there. Yes, this bit here is ancient woodland and it's owned by the local county council. And he used to go wandering there as a boy, climbing trees and running in and out of the swallow holes and going and finding the wild ponies up there. And so he'd write, looking out that tiny little window up there on the right there, mm-hmm. sitting in the windowsill. He said whenever he got writer's block, he'd run up this lane here and go for a walk in the woods. He'd keep on walking and walking and walking and the landscape would give him little bits and pieces and he ended up building stories around that and then he'd write them down little stones and leaves and bark so that he could keep that memory. You'll obviously be very familiar with Hardy's work. Oh gosh, there's hundreds of poems. Tess of the D'Urbervilles, Return of the Native, the Mayor of Casterbridge. In all of his novels, the landscape is a character in itself. I'm mm. not exaggerating, am I? No, it's no. so strong. There's a little barrow called Rain Barrow up on the middle of the heathland. And you look out and you can see the whole of Dorset below your feet. And you really get that feeling of just being a small human being dwarfed by this huge landscape, which I think comes along in Hardy's novels a lot, this feeling that people make choices depending on where they are and that the landscape will will change who they are. In Return of the Native, you get Eustacia Vai, who's the heroine, who's standing there on Rainbarrow, and she just looks down and feels just completely isolated, and for her, that isolation is crippling. But then for the other character of the story, Klim, that isolation is what kind of nurtures him and heals him. So he drew from real landscape, but he created an imagined place, which he called Wessex. Mm. He started that in his novel, Far From Adding Crowds, and I think it was partly to protect the the people and the landscape that he loved to make it slightly obscure so he didn't have too many people coming and poking around in these little villages but also I I think it was that kind of romance he wanted to try and capture that world that his parents had known and so trying to capture that disappearing life 
living here especially because it's so isolated he got to know the landscape intimately because you know he was walking to school in the mornings he was walking three miles down all these little wonder ways and across people's land and he'd know all the people that farm that land and he just got to know every single detail of it in the way that I think people don't to the same extent now when we're driving everywhere. Oh, it's just enthralling and intriguing. And you just want to find out more about what he was drawing from. So mm. shall we start doing that? We'll have a wee peek into the cottage. Yes. And looking out of the window... Yeah, there's a beautiful poem that describes him sitting here at the end of the day and he's meant to be doing his architecture of work but he's been scribbling away these poems and he's saying, oh, it's such a waste of a day. And in this poem he says, but then again, I've managed to capture these beautiful things. And he talks about the sun just disappearing at the end of that valley there, below the trees and just the burning cauldron of the sun. And the long apple tree shadows that you can see stretching across the garden and kind of seeming to reach towards the house. This is the first poem he composed himself. It starts off with looking about the cottage and the garden here, this veil of boughs hanging over the roof and then goes behind the scene as wilder. Heath and firs are everywhere that seems to grow and thrive upon the uneven ground. A stunted thorn stands here and there, indeed, and from a pit an oak uprises, springing from a seed. In days gone by, long gone, my father's mother, who is now blessed with the blessed, would take me out to walk. At such a time I once inquired of her how looked the spot when first she settled here. The answer I remember. Our house stood quite alone, and those tall firs and beeches were not planted. Snakes and efts swarmed in the summer days, and nightly bats would fly about our bedrooms. Heathcroppers lived on the hills and were our only friends. So wild it was when first we settled here. Back into the cottage garden. And what I'm going to find out more about now is how landscape can really influence the very process of writing, like it did for Hardy. So I'm going to head up onto the heath, which is set beyond the woodland behind uh, the cottage here, with Tracy Guyrie and with Jane Fever, who is a short story writer and a novelist. So I don't know if I know a way to sort of test this idea. There's a project being run by Literature Works, and Tracy, you're the CEO of that. So That's right. Explain what's happening. Well, we're working with the National Trust and the Poetry Archive just to put writers in residence into these houses because we think that a writer that gets to spend a good, solid chunk of time with a house can really absorb the atmosphere and learn not only that there are fields and the layout of the land, but coltits might be feeding at certain times and certain places and flowers might be growing at certain times and, and the smells and the feeling and the noise, and that all goes into the writing in ways that you can't understand unless you actually come to that place and see it. And are you expecting the person who comes to absorb themselves into this particular landscape round Hardy's cottage, do you want them to then draw from Hardy as well or to start afresh from the landscape? We want them to start afresh, really. We, writers are very good at picking at the thread of a story and it can go off in any direction. Since they come to Hardy's countryside, then, then that countryside will have an impact that is very similar but we do allow them to write whatever they get to feel from the landscape. But it is amazing what a writer will pick on and think that that's the really fascinating bit, and off they go in a whole new direction. Terrific. Right, we've got a bit of a climb up onto the heath. Yes. Are you, you game? Yes. yes. Writers go. are fit people, generally. <laughs> are they? Jane's wandering, are they? Yes. <laughs> so we're up into the woodland, and there are signposts amongst the trees. So we'll go up to what's called Black Heath. 
and the access road to Rushy Pond. Rushy Pond. <laughs> Jane, how influenced are you by place? How much of an influence do they have in the books that you write? Hugely is the answer. I think place is what got me writing in the first place. And it was because I'd moved from London to Devon to a landscape that I didn't know at all. It was between Dartmoor and Exmoor. But it reminded me of a childhood landscape, which was the moors of Northumberland. And immediately that triggered something in me, a sort of recognition or a familiarity, which I think you get when you're reading someone like Hardy, actually. So there's, there's different ways into a landscape. I'm out of breath showing you how unfit writers are. <laughs> um, I mean, so absolutely knew this place intimately, more than any of us are, are likely to do unless we have that sort of upbringing, which is rarer and rarer these days. So when you read, you could see possibly what's about to be revealed to us at, at behind the woodland here that we're walking Well, I through. wonder. It always amazes me that these trees were here. These trees are more than 200 years old. Those are the same trees that he walked past. This idea of the Wessex and calling places different by different names there's no real reason to do that. He's not going to offend a place, like a person, for instance. All the stuff that he sees around him and all that detailed knowledge, he's actually creating what is his version of a place. Yes. And I think that's the thing that a writer can give you. He can direct your attention to something you wouldn't necessarily see yourself. Let's get to this heath. And I want to see what happens to you when it reveals itself. Well, it's actually lovely coming to it, almost like a virgin, you know, coming to it for the first time. It's really exciting. Re I'm rereading Return of the Native at the moment, and I'd completely forgotten it. So it's like coming to it anew. The whole of the first chapter is just landscape. It's introducing us to this bleak, doer, titanic, he calls it, heath. No figures at all, except that he does introduce a sort of hypothetical figure. And he says, if a furs cutter had been there, this is what he would have thought of the, of the atmosphere. See, he funnels the observation through that working man. This signpost, it says, we've walked a quarter of a mile from Hardy's cottage. We can go right to Blackheath. Behind the signpost is a, a big open uh, pond area, graveled at the edge. Do you smell the heath? Do you smell woodiness can, or something, vegetation, new growth? Yes, there is a sort of brackety smell. And that, mm. that pool is deeply, to me, sinister. And if we were hardy, we probably would know all the stories. You know, we know that someone might have been drowned in that pool or might have tried to drown themselves in that pool. You need to be in a place for a long, long, long time, I think, to absorb it properly. And that's what hardy was so extraordinary at doing, I mean, not only the high register words, but he, he pulls in all sorts of cultural references to this very specific locale. So it's not like an artist who might sit with an easel and capture what they're experiencing. There are clear similarities between painting or framing a photograph, for instance, in that there is a sort of a meditative almost quality that you've got to subsume your own ego and let the place take, take over a little bit. But then, yes, I think you do need to then go away and be quiet. I think a view is anathema to a writer, because if you see a view, it's just distracting, or if it's beautiful, it's overwhelming. And it literally yeah. takes your breath away, doesn't yes. it? So it takes yeah. the words. It does, it's hard to describe. And the danger is you'll fall into using clichés. And yes. Don't want yes. to do that. Particularly on a beautiful day like this. Yeah. You know, it's just cliché city, isn't it? <laughs> it's terrible. So for Heath, it is... 
scrambled over by brambles and the bracken and then a few established trees and then young trees trying to sort of spurt up through the bracken like these rowans here. Yeah. And the view beyond oh, from this height. Across Dorset. And it is the scene of Egdon Heath. We're actually here in daylight, but at the beginning, where in pitch black they light these beacon fires. It's like a scarlet red wound in a black hide or something, these fires. And I think the amazing thing, rereading Hardy Now I Live in the Country or in the Southwest, is realising how current a lot of that stuff still is. I think in the city you don't realise these things still go on. But then you just see these fires, and locals will know that fire belongs to that hamlet that fire belongs there just as hardy says it's like a clock without any numbers you know where the hands are pointing just because you know <laughs> so now you read return of the native i'm again. halfway through it mm-hmm. <laughs> but the heath bowl it featured big time in that because for one it was a prison and somewhere she couldn't yes. escape from and actually that i totally identify with because i think if you're not of the country it can be very oppressive there is this sense that the landscape's against you it won't help you out if you're upset it's not going to help it's just going to be there you know nature doesn't care how then tremendous was hardy's skill to use nature and the wild and the landscape to help tell his story we have a lot in common, I think, more in common than we think with, say, the Aborigines. A place, a tree, a rock would have an ancestor buried in it, a story buried in it. And I think Hardy really understood, or, or instinctively, that was his process too, that there's ghosts in every place. It's full of ghosts, and the, and the past is here, present with us now. Perhaps all great artists do see that. You know, it's common to all cultures, that, that real understanding. OK, we get out here. So we've come up to the top of a hill above the village of Godmanston and it's in the Cern Valley and I'm with Will Best, he's an organic farmer and he wanted me to come up to this hill so we can get, oh well yes, the most fantastic view down across Dorset. Oh Will, it's lovely. That's Dorchester down in the, in the fold of the hills there. All along the horizon are the, the coastal hills just this side of the coast mm-hmm. and yeah, there's Portland. I was sent away to boarding school and I was in the library one day thinking I'd better read a book and nobody had ever suggested Hardy. And I saw this book, it's a Tess of the D'Urbervilles, Thomas Hardy on the book, and I opened it and it just took me straight home. Opens the first page, and I thought, this is fantastic. And then of course these wonderful characters and then the way that everything that happened related to where it happened. And of course I knew all the places and so it completely made sense to me and, and of course he was brilliant on farming in so many books I mean we've just had this far from the Madding Crowd movie and yes. you know and the sheep got blown and all the farming bits you know he was well he grew up around it yeah. you see so we were seeing what he was seeing well yes he, he was looking back a little bit he was looking back from his childhood really yeah. what his memory from his from his early years yes did it not make you very homesick at boarding school reading Tess well in a way it, it, it didn't, because I could be at home while still being there, kind of thing. <laughs> Lovely. You know what I mean? Did then. you do his poetry at all, or was it just yeah, the, yes? Yeah, yeah. I read one of his poems at my father's funeral. In a, when a hedgehog furtively crosses the lawn, will they say, he strove that such innocent creatures should come to no harm, but he could do little for them, and now he's gone? It's all about someone that loved nature. 
after he died, and it suited, it fitted for my father. You mentioned the film now, Will. Oh, yes, um. yes. That was fun. <laughs> was it? The chap came looking for locations. Well, I said, you're going to need some, um, some sheaves of wheat and some wheat ricks and things for Gabriel Oak and all that. And I said, we're one of the very few farms left in the county that still does the old-fashioned harvesting because we do it for thatching straw, you see. A sheaf is a bundle of mm-hmm. corn mm-hmm. A, with one string round the middle. It's a very attractive thing because you've got the whole head of the wheat. And because the string is higher up on the stem, then the, the lower stems splay it, out. A little bit, yeah. And then they can That's stand. It. That's it. Mm-hmm. So there I was, 550 of these things to, <laughs> with my, t- my two-prong, what we call a pick, a pitchfork chucking them off with these chaps by the way. Did you feel really in touch with Hardy's characters at that point, Gabriel Oak and others? Well, well not quite. <laughs> I, I, I have felt, I have been in that situation where we've been sheeting the rick as the thunderstorms come on. The urgency of it. Yes, I've you understand I, that. I've been, I've been there. <laughs> but that harvest scene in the film now, there were an awful lot of people working on the land. Yes, it, well, I, I remember coming out there thinking, blimey, we could do ours in a day if we had all these people, you know. Uh, but mind you, there were a lot of people in the harvest gang. I mean, when you've cut and put these stooks all around the field, it's like land art. It's beautiful. And it's just one of those, some of those old crafts that are involved in it, which otherwise could die. And, you know, as you look out and perhaps a little bit further afield, are there places, you know that you see and think, ah, oh, that, that is from that story. Or Yeah, it, it, it happens when you're driving about and you suddenly think, Tess was made to swear on that stone there. You know, you just, and, and it's like, there she is, you know? And you get down in the Vale and you think, oh, that's where Talbotay's dairy was. I mean, you, you know, you, you can't help it. And, of course, Waterston Manor, which was the model for Bathsheba's house, is only just over the, the hill there. Oh, it's such a sound of summer. There is definitely a groundswell of people more interested in Hardy now than there was. Well, in 1968, uh, which was 40 years after his death, the Hardy Society put on a Hardy Festival for a week. Well, it was a gift for me because trying to get together with this lovely girl and wanted something to take her to, and they were all there. And uh, what is it, 2015? And it, unlike the characters in a Hardy novel, <laughs> we've actually worked together all these years. That was when it was just sort of getting going. I, I, I don't think it's just because he set it in this landscape. It's because he had such an absolutely intimate understanding of it. And, and, and he was a great writer. And he just completely gets it right when he writes about it. I'm standing on a lovely humpbacked red brick bridge looking down into, well, quite here, very shallow waters of the River Froom. Those long strands of green weed, like combed hair down across the stones that are exposed there and the yellows and the browns of the stonework. You see that in the housing in Dorset a lot. I'm here with Tony Fincham, who is... A great Hardy enthusiast. That's what drove you to writing your book, Hardy's Landscapes Revisited, which is what we're doing now in a way. We're actually looking out across his Valley of the Great Dairies where Tess of the D'Urbervilles met and was courted by Angel Clare, although not a a cow in sight at this moment. Uh, What I was very much aware of is is the fact that his fiction was really centred on a very small territory. Most of the 
major sites in fiction lie within a mile or two of the birthplace at High Bockhampton. Even though some of the stories were set further afield, he was using the detail from the landscapes, like this water meadow that we're looking out now. He used those details in the stories. And the places he wrote about, because, I mean, we're standing here on this bridge at Lower Bockhampton, which is his lower mellstock from under the greenwood tree. The cottage just on our left is the cottage where Jude the Obscure was ostensibly born. And obviously Jude is set all over Oxfordshire and uh, what he called North Wessex, but he had to bring him back here because this was the landscape that he knew most intimately. And this path was here in Hardy's day. This is described in uh, Under the Greenwood Tree when the Melstock Choir are returning from their carol singing uh, that they walk along this path and this is where they meet Voss who brings some provisions. It's also where they notice that Dick Dewey, the tranter's son, is missing because Dick is back over there outside the schoolhouse enchanted by the vision of Fancy Day standing at the window with her hair dangling down. How do you know that you definitely have got the right places that he was writing about? There was a man called Herman Lee who Hardy went out with in the first decade of the 20th century and Herman Lee produced a, a guide to Thomas Hardy's Wessex uh, where a lot of these places were identified. But there are problems with that because some of it was Hardy wanting to disguise things that were a bit too close to home. And particularly, for instance, in The Return of the Native where Bonston Farmhouse was identified by Lee as Bloom's End. But really it was actually his parents house but of course the time the novel was written both his parents were still living there and the novel is quite a bit about the troubled relationship between Clemio Bright and his mother. So he didn't want people trying to find that place no. but in a way he did want people to find this place. This is why we're here now and why he, he has proved such a successful writer because this part real part dream landscape is real enough that you can find it and walk on it as we're doing today. <laughs> and there were a lot of people up at Hardy's cottage wanting to touch what it was that he was writing about, maybe? This wouldn't have happened if, if, if he wasn't a literary genius. Uh, and he's written particularly poetry that I think will endure for many generations to come because he's writing about the human condition and particularly writing about nature and the natural world. These are things that people will be able to continue to understand for centuries to come. He was conscious how rapidly things were changing. Dorset as a county then, and to some extent still now, was a little bit behind. And therefore he was able to capture a way of life in his writing which had been going on for centuries and he felt was very strongly threatened and of course most of which has now disappeared. People come to Thomas Hardy in lots of different ways. What about yourself? When I was a student studying medicine it gave me plenty of time in between lectures to read all Hardy's works and then I first <laughs> set off as a, on one of my vacations to explore his Wessex. On the way back I thought I'd never met my paternal grandfather I went there and found he was a founder member of the Thomas Hardy Society and I'd had absolutely no connection with him so I felt there must be a genetic tendency. <laughs> and I realised my dad wasn't interested in Hardy, my children aren't. Well, my daughters had an expression, boff, which stood for boring old Thomas Hardy. <laughs> but I'm hoping for my grandchildren, but they're not old enough yet. I'm just walking into the graveyard and uh, we're going to go to his final resting place. Although it's not quite as simple as that, Tony, is it? Hardy had always wished to be buried with his ancestors but, but unfortunately when he died his executors thought he was too much public property and a compromise was reached whereby his heart was taken out by the local GP and the rest of his body was cremated and his ashes were buried 
in Poets' Corner. And here we have, here lies the heart of Thomas Hardy. And we're under the shading branches of an old yew tree, deeply grooved and twisted and turned. And it takes us very much back to his poetry, because a poem called Transformations, and the first line of that is, portion of this yew is a man my grandson knew. And did a landscape feature in his poetry? Oh, oh, very much so, yes. Yeah. One of my favourite poems is called Wessex Heights. There are some heights in Wessex shaped as if by a kindly hand. For thinking, dreaming, dying on, and a crisis when I stand, saying Ingpen Beacon eastward, or Will's Net westwardly. I seem where I was before my birth, and after death may be.